Exodus chapter 11, the plague on the firstborn. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn's Firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at a hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. But the Lord had hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of their houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you are to burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's, it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats 
eats for whoever eats anything with yeast in it must from the first day from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on that this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first months, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whether and anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood of the basin, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and both on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of your house out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of that doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did what, just what the Lord commanded Maris, Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Thanks so much, guys. Good morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome. I'm Jack. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here at TCU. Uh, We've been journeying through the book of Exodus together as a church, and we've been reminded of of a promise-keeping God who will uh, respond to the cries of his people who are in slavery. He will remember his promises that he made to them. He will uh, rescue them. Um, when we reflect back on our lives, our minds often drift, don't they, into the events and, and different times that really helped shape who we are today. Uh, you know, people and places, good times and bad times, small moments, really drawn out moments, uh, failures and successes. There are many moments that have helped shape who we are today. I know for me, one of those things uh, wasn't, wasn't a once-off thing, but something that I used to do with my older brother uh, and our, our dad when, when we were a bit younger. We'd go on nice long drives down to Gawler, 
uh, where there was a bike track. And we used to ride our motorbikes around that track. And I, I, was, I was absolutely terrible at it. I'd fall off all the time. Then uh, Dad would, of course, encourage me to get back up to try again to keep going. Uh, but the thing I really loved about that was the long drives that we'd take to get there with the music cranked up with the windows wound down. I think it's a really big reason why I love long road trips today and also probably why I don't have a motorbike as well. There's a bit else going on there. Uh, but it shaped me in some way. What events help shape who you are today? For the Israelites in the Old Testament, there was one event they always uh, looked back on as they reflected on who they were as a people. And it's what we've just read out today in Exodus chapter 11 and 12. It's, it's the Passover. And three times in chapter 12, God tells the Israelites to celebrate the Passover as a festival to the Lord, as a lasting ordinance. It's in chapter 12, verse 14, 17, and 24. So each year they were to celebrate the Passover as a festival. And when their children asked them in chapter 12, verse 26, what does this ceremony mean to you? They were to tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Nations all around the world have days when they remember significant events or moments that form them into what they are today. And for the Israelites, it was this day. It was the Passover. The day they took on a new identity as a rescued people, as a redeemed people. See, it was the day the judgment of God worked out for their salvation. And the line for us all to remember today is this, that in the Passover we see judgment working out for the salvation of God's people and we see a reminder for the generations that God is the God who saves. See, thousands of years later, this event is still significant for us today because it points to an even greater rescue, a rescue that defines who we are as Christians because at the core of who a Christian is, at the core of someone who trusts in Jesus is that we too are a rescued people. We are a redeemed people. Here in this room, we too remember as we read through Exodus 11 and 12, that God's judgment worked out for our salvation and that we too need to remember and remind the generations to come that God is a God who saves. If you have a leaflet in front of you, you'll see that point one there says judgment working out for salvation. In Exodus 11, verse 1 to 10, we read of the final plague that God is going to send against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians. God has sent nine plagues so far, but this tenth plague will be a little bit different. See, in all the other plagues, God has shown mercy. He has withheld his judgment when Pharaoh asked Moses to intercede for him. But the tenth plague is different. See, there's no, there's no going back. Pharaoh has refused to listen to God, and so God's judgment is coming. It's quite a sobering read this morning, isn't it? We read in verse 1, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. It should be on the screen behind me. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and of gold. See, this is it. This is what the, the other plagues have been leading to. One final plague that will mean Pharaoh will finally let God's people go. But the Israelites won't leave with their tail between their legs, will they? They won't be sent out into the wilderness with nothing but the clothes on their backs. No, they'll be leaving as the victors of a great battle. With silver and gold, with heads 
held high, no longer slaves, but free. And they'll leave with their flocks and with their herds, with all their families. So we read about what is going to happen in verses 4 to 6, don't we? Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who was at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing through Egypt, worse than there ever has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So here we're reading a couple of echoes from earlier in Exodus. I wonder if they stood out to you. See, firstly, we hear it in the language of the firstborn. From Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 to 23, we've known why this is all taking place, haven't we? God had said to Moses, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. All of the plagues leading up to this moment But Pharaoh, knowing that he was going to face God's judgment, has refused to let God's firstborn, Israel, go. So God will take Pharaoh's firstborn, the firstborn of Egypt, in chapter 12. But it's not the only echo that we read in these verses, is it? In chapter 1, we read of the command to the Egyptians to kill all the newborn males of their Hebrew slaves by throwing them into the Nile. A really horrific sight, a really horrific command. And we read of a cry that went up at the end of chapter 2 from the Hebrews to God. A cry that God heard. But in chapter 11 verse 6, another cry would go up, this time from the people of Egypt. But they would be unanswered. They had refused to listen to the warnings God had sent them. And the cries going up to their false gods and to their pharaoh... They will be unanswered. God was going to judge the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And then they would let God's firstborn, Israel, go and Israel would be free. Verse 8 we read, All these officials of yours will come to me bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that I will leave. God's judgment would work out for the salvation, for the redemption of his people. In verse 9, we read that God, uh, what God had said earlier to Moses. He'd said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. But then we read this in verse 10, that Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. And it's a thing that catches us out a bit, isn't it? God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But throughout the plagues from chapters 7 through to 12, we read of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, not once, but four times, while Pharaoh hardens his own heart three times. And how are we meant to take this? Because it probably makes you feel pretty uncomfortable to read that. It's okay that Pharaoh would harden his own heart, uh, but what about when God hardens Pharaoh's heart? I want to say, I don't think there's any silver bullet answer here that will deal with that feeling. But I think the best way to think about it 
is that in hardening Pharaoh's heart, God was merely giving Pharaoh over to his own natural inclination to be his own God and to worship what he wanted. God was giving Pharaoh over to his own natural inclination to be his own God and to worship what he wanted. And this was actually part of God's judgment being revealed against Pharaoh and the Egyptians from the start. The reason I say this is that because Scripture teaches that the natural inclination of all of us is to turn away from God and do this. On the screen behind me, in Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul writes about how everyone has turned away from God in this way. And Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And then later in chapter 1, verse 22 to 23, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and and birds and animals and reptiles. Remember the image of the serpent that the Egyptians bowed down to as a God. But then we read throughout chapter 1, three times, actually it's on the screen, that, that God gave them over to the natural inclination of their hearts as part of his judgment. God gives them over to what they want. Life devoid of God. Living in darkness. Doing what they ought not to have done. See, Pharaoh wasn't a bystander when God rocked up and said, let my people go. He was the leader of the oppression of God's firstborn. The leader of a nation who discarded the real one God for fake gods. A nation who had murdered the newborn males of the Hebrew slaves by throwing them into the Nile. They were not innocent. But those God had been withholding judgment from, even though they deserved it. And now, in the final plague, that judgment is bearing down. And it's a really hard one, isn't it, to think about judgment this way. I think our culture really loves the idea of justice. We really love it, and rightly, I think. We actually crave to see justice take place... And that's a really good thing to desire, and it's actually something that God desires. But I think the thing we struggle with is that we actually want to be the ones who get to decide what is right and wrong, instead of the God who made the universe, who made right and wrong, who has the big picture of humanity on display before him. Remember in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 that we read earlier this year? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's confronting, isn't it? And it's really uncomfortable because that means that our hearts are also on display before God. And I think that's one of the reasons why we really want to be the ones who get to decide what is right and wrong. Because if we look at our own hearts and we really see what is there, we would see the same sin that sits in the heart of all the world. The same sin that is deserving of God's just judgment. A judgment that comes when God decides it's time, not us. And that's something that stands out in God's final plague as well, isn't it? In Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 to 13, we see that God's judgment only passes over the Israelites for one reason. It's not because they are a better people than the Egyptians or Pharaoh. It's only because there is a substitute that takes their place. Otherwise, the firstborn of Israel would have been taken as well. See, the Israelites are told to take a male lamb, in verse 1 to 7 on the screen behind me, one year old without any blemish, 
and together on the 14th day of the month to slaughter them at twilight. We read in chapter 12, verse 7, Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And why? Well, we read in verse 12 to 13, God says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and where I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. See, the Lord's judgment would work out for the salvation of his people, but only if there was another life taken in the place of their firstborn. Only if its blood covered the entrance to their home. The Israelites were told to eat the meat roasted over the fire, to eat it with haste. They were told to eat the bread without yeast in it, to not wait while it rises, to eat the meal, wearing their cloaks tucked into their belts, their sandals on their feet, their staffs in hand, because at the judgment of God, they would be free. And they are to be ready to leave slavery, to leave Egypt, to worship the God who would deliver them. Now, on the night of the Passover, if you were there, how, how would you have felt knowing that all this was about to happen? I've heard this illustration a, a bunch of times from different pastors who've preached on this passage. I'm not sure where it originates from, but I was talking to Chris this morning. We, we decided maybe it came from Don Carson. I think Chris had heard it from him, maybe. Um, but imagine this. Okay, imagine that Bob and Larry are Hebrew neighbours in Egypt just hanging out together, both with firstborn sons. And one night, they both meet each other outside, paintbrushes in hand, and they're painting blood on the tops and sides of their door frames. And they have a bit of a chat with each other, as neighbours do, when they're painting blood on door frames. Um, Larry says, Bob, yeah, Larry, are you afraid for your firstborn son? Are you, like, do you really think this is going to work? Is the blood of the lamb going to be enough of a sign for God to see him pass over? And Bob says, you know what, Larry? I'm actually not afraid. I'm really confident. God will do what he said. Actually, I'm pretty hungry and I'm really looking forward to some roast lamb, so let's get this over and done with. But then Larry says, uh, or Bob says, Larry. Larry says, yeah, Bob. Are you afraid? Larry says, you know what? I'm actually terrified. I don't think I'm as confident as you. I'm really worried for my son. I'm scared about the judgment of God. I really hope this is enough. And they both finish up, both go inside. And then come morning time, whose son do you think is okay? Well, the answer is both of them. Because it doesn't matter if it's small faith or big faith or faith without doubt or faith with some questions. Both act out of faith in what God had promised. Both families are delivered. And it's not because of the strength of their faith. It's because God has said that when he saw the blood, he would pass over them, and he did. And in verse 29 to 31, we read that the plague comes. God passes over them. The firstborn of Egypt are taken. Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron and says, finally, after chapter and chapter and chapter of reading this, finally, he says, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. 
judgment of God works out for the salvation of his people. And finally, after 400 years of slavery, God's firstborn is redeemed, is rescued. Point two on your outline says, a reminder for the generations. It's so interesting to try to imagine the feeling, the emotion and the excitement as well as the fear and the hope as God's people are finally rescued from slavery to the Egyptians. What they've been waiting for for so long has happened. They're set free as they leave Egypt. What has just happened? You'd hardly be able to believe it. But God's judgment has worked out for their salvation. And they're told by God that the memory of this is to be passed down to all the generations to come. We read it firstly in verse 14, don't we? That this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. In verse 17 as well, celebrate the festival of of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In verse 24 as well, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that God, that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. It's also actually there at the end of chapter 12. We read, because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. See, the identity of the Israelites as a rescued people was not just for those who were present for the exodus from Egypt. It's their identity from here on out. Who are they? They are God's people. They are a rescued people. And they are to remember it always. In verses 26 to 27, when their children ask them, what does this ceremony mean to you? God says, then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Their identity is tied always to the fact that without God, they would be nothing. That without God, they would have nothing. And this was to shape the way they raised their children and the generations to come. They did not rescue themselves. They did not overthrow Egypt by their might. Their God did. Who in his great mercy, as his judgment passed over their homes, did not fall onto them. Not because they were special, not because they had done anything at all but because of a lamb who was slain and whose blood covered them. Because the reality is they were sinful too. And without a substitute to take their place, God's judgment would have fallen on them as well. It's the reality for everyone. See, later on in Israel's history, in the Old Testament, the idea of a substitute lamb who would take their place would resurface again in Leviticus as a lamb sacrificed in the tabernacle, would atone for the sins of the people, would turn aside God's wrath from a rebellious people who don't deserve his mercy, but who God chose to show mercy to anyway. And the lamb would surface again in the Bible, in the New Testament, when the man John the Baptist looked up and saw Jesus coming toward him. And what did he say? He said, yeah, look, it's the lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes to a church, urging them to turn away from their sin. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. See, the Passover in Exodus points toward a once and for all judgment 
that worked out for salvation. And it's not the blood of an animal painted on the sides and tops of a door that does this. It's the blood of the Lamb of God, of Jesus himself shed on a cross for you and I, that God's judgment might pass over us and instead fall on Jesus, our Passover Lamb, who was sacrificed in our place. His life given in place of our life, that we might be redeemed from slavery to sin and death. See, it's not a coincidence that on the night God's people were celebrating the Passover, that Jesus would die the next day. But in taking the Passover with his disciples, Jesus fulfills its meaning entirely. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 26. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, Jesus' life, given in exchange for ours, the great substitute, as God's judgment is poured out on Jesus instead of us. The judgment of God working out for our salvation as our Passover lamb, Jesus, is sacrificed and as his blood is poured out for us, for our forgiveness, for our redemption. See, Jesus took the Passover meal and gave it new meaning so that just as the Israelites would celebrate the Passover meal to remember when God delivered them from slavery back then, that today we can celebrate what the Passover lamb always pointed to. Deliverance not from human slavery, but from a bondage much more terrible than that. A bondage to sin and death. As God's judgment works out for our salvation at the cross. God's emphasis, or he emphasizes the importance of remembering in Exodus chapter 12. Four times. And the importance of remembering this today is just as, if, if not more, relevant and important. Because as we've seen, the judgment of God is real. And Jesus is the only way to be saved from it. So we need to remember our Passover lamb so that we can firstly remember our need for Jesus ourselves, but secondly, so that we can remind the generations of what he has done and urge them to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. Because it's only faith in what Jesus has done that can save us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But it's the greatest news there is. And we get to share in that together. I think there are, there are a few, there are many ways that we can keep remembering our Passover lamb together. But let's dwell on a few of those. So I think the first is by reminding the younger generations about what Jesus has done. At the moment, there is a room full of children just in the hall across from us, being reminded of their need for Jesus. On Friday night, here in this building, Radiate and TCU Youth were running, where our youth were being reminded of their need for Jesus and the need to trust in Him. Last Sunday evening, Unley Evenings was running, where our young adults were being reminded of their need for Jesus and how all the Bible points to Him. There is nothing more important than knowing the truth of who Jesus is. So how can we, as a church here, keep reminding the younger generations of what Jesus has done for him, for them and how to live in response? 
Father, how might you play a part in doing this? That might mean having a conversation with someone on staff, with me. And it might be about getting involved in in kids or youth or young adults. Or asking how you might be able to get involved in, in reminding the younger generations of Jesus. But for those of you who are already involved in those areas, remember you are taking part in one of the most important things we could actually be doing as a church. Reminding the generations of their saviour and helping them follow him. That's what you do when it's really early on a Sunday morning, when it's cold, but you come in to help with the children's program. It's what you were doing during the week on a Wednesday night and on a Friday night when you run the youth program. You are reminding the younger generations of the saviour they desperately need. They are learning to trust in and follow him, and it's the most important thing they will ever do. So thank you for what you're doing already. Or if you are a parent or an uncle or auntie, uh, whether by blood or as a close friend of the family, or if you're an older sibling or if you're a grandparent, how can you prioritise helping your children or your nieces and nephews or your siblings or your grandchildren know and understand what it is that Jesus has done for them? It might mean on a Sunday morning or the Friday night when you're really tired, remembering the importance of the generation's knowing Jesus, that you might make the extra effort to get them to church or youth, of them seeing that it's not just something you want them to prioritise, but that in your own life, you think it's important that even when you're tired, even when the week's been hard, that you yourself want to remember the goodness of God. That when you get home from work and you're exhausted, you still take the time to open your Bible and read it with them. Because you want to help remind them of the goodness of their God and their need for him. It's one way we can keep remembering our Passover lamb together by reminding the younger generations. And the second way is by committing. Committing to spending time in the word together. It's really great and fun to hang out socially and I hope we all get opportunities to enjoy doing that and enjoy friendships together. But is there a way you are prioritising meeting up with another Christian brother or sister or brothers and sisters to remind each other of our Passover lamb. That might be in a community group during the week or it might be by pulling together two or three others before work in the morning and saying, let's catch up, let's talk talk about what we're learning about Jesus from the Bible over coffee before we go into the office on a Thursday, let's do it. It might be reading through a Christian book with a couple of others and talking about what you are learning. How can you commit to spending time in the Word together? It's the second way we can keep remembering. The third way is by remembering together as a church community our Passover lamb. The Passover was the meal of remembrance for the Israelites. And we have a different meal of remembrance, don't we? We don't celebrate the Passover. That was for the Israelites who were rescued from Egypt to be reminded of the God whose judgment passed over them. Today we remember in the Lord's Supper. Now the Lord's Supper can kind of just feel like one of those Christian traditions that we take part in. And for some of us it's because as kids growing up in church, it's just what was done, so we do it today. For others, it might just feel like a weird kind of ritual that Christians do and you don't quite get it. Uh, But we do it to remember. To remember Jesus' body given for us. 
We do it to remember Jesus' blood poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. We do it to proclaim the death of the Lord until he returns. We do it because we know that on the cross when Jesus died, God's judgment on him worked out for our salvation. A salvation that isn't ours because we eat some bread or drink some grape juice, but a salvation that is ours because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we remember together and we take part in a meal that points to an eternal banquet that we will one day enjoy as we sit in the presence of our King with our Passover lamb, Jesus, and enjoy him for eternity. Now we're going to do a fourth thing that helps us remember our Passover lamb, Jesus, in just a moment by singing. We're going to sing a great song that reminds us that there is no other way that we can be saved but through him. Uh, But after that, the the kids are actually going to come back in here and join us. And we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper together and remember. Uh, But first, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And the band is going to lead us in singing. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Lord God, thank you for our Passover lamb, Jesus. Thank you that by his blood shed for us on the cross, our sin is dealt with and we are forgiven. Thank you that on the cross your judgment worked out for the salvation of those who turn to you in repentance and faith. Thank you that this is all because of how you have chosen to act toward us out of grace when we deserved wrath. We praise you as the God who saves, as the God we desperately need and the God who we love. Please help us daily to remember what it is you have done for us in your Son and to remind one another always of your goodness to us in him. Amen.